Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This morning's reading is from James chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Please be seated. It is an honor and privilege to gather with you all here this morning to uh, worship with our Lord and Savior. Today, we continue our study in James, a most interesting book. (laughs) And uh, what, what makes it particularly unique is where it sits within redemptive history. And uh, this is true of uh, just about any book, but I I find it very helpful uh, to understand where a particular book fits in with a context of redemptive history, because that can make a difference into how we approach that particular scripture. Uh, For example, it's understanding the reason why God does anything. God created so that he could be known, and that the glory of And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters covered the sea. So he created. And then man fell. And from the very fall, he made a promise that he would be the redeemer of all of his people. And so his people knew, all the way moving up, that a redeemer was coming, that a a savior was going to come, a messiah. They didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. They didn't know when, but they had glimpses. And then it happened. God's redemptive plan started to unfold, and it happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It happened. Now, it didn't look the way that they thought it was going to look, but there it was. And and so God redeemed his people. But God's redemptive plan was not done. His redemptive purpose was to not only redeem his people, but also to redeem all of creation. He has not yet done that. And so here we sit, God God redeemed his people, and then for thousands of years later, we sit right in the middle of God's two redemptive purposes, the redemption of his people, and the yet-to-come redemption 
of all of creation. Those two things are going to happen. And this, this redemption of creation um, is, is something that we expect. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but we have glimpses. We may have to be prepared that that may not look the way that we think it's going to look. But it's going to happen. But here we sit, and this is where it gets interesting, where you and I are right now, we sit right in between God's two great redemptive purposes. He has already redeemed us in spirit. We are redeemed children of God, but yet we as redeemed children of God live in a yet unredeemed world. It's going to be redeemed, but, but it's not redeemed yet. And what's even worse is that we are redeemed individuals living in yet unredeemed bodies. And that is weird. It's a little bit awkward. Now, you and I might be used to this whole idea. And, and, and this to us, this period in between God has redeemed his people and is yet going to redeem creation, it feels like a long time to us, but it's not a long time. In, in terms of the overall scheme of eternity and God's redemptive history, this time is actually relatively short. You and I sit in a very short and unique period of redemptive history. And so there we are, sitting right in between God's two great redemptive purposes, like tectonic plates grinding up against each other. It invites conflict. And what we see in our life is conflict, pain, anguish. It just doesn't feel right. And we as redeemed individuals have this sense and feeling that something isn't right in this world. And that's because it isn't. It isn't right in this world. This world is conflicted. And that is why uh, Pat has set the theme of the entire book of James to be, see, our crowns sit crooked on a conflicted world. Because the world that we are living in is conflicted. It is broken. It is not the way that it ought to be. It will be one day, but today it is not. You know how we think of this, what it's like to live in this world. But to those who are being written to in the book of James, you have to understand their context. As we have said, James was written very early in the process. It would have been within the first 10 years of the ascension of Christ. And so James is not writing a lot of uh, deep theological writings. He's being very practical and pragmatic. If you can put yourself in the shoes of a lot of people that were just the next few years after God did his redemptive work of his people, they were probably thinking, what exactly does that mean? So, so we, we understand that the Messiah has come and, and, and we are now redeemed, but, but like, what does that mean, like, practically, pr- pragmatically, to, to be a redeemed individual that's living in a yet broken world? It's, it's different. It's different than what it was before, but, but what, does it, what does it mean? And so James addresses that very issue throughout all of James. Practically, how do we, as redeemed individuals, live within a broken world? And overwhelmingly, His advice is the same throughout the entire book. We live by the grace of God. You could argue the entire theme of James is about living by the grace of God. And the pragmatic outworkings of what that looks like is be humble. We live by the grace of God, so be humble. And we at Waukesha Bible Church, we talk about grace all the time. We love grace. It's it's, it's a wonderful thing. And yet... Nobody seeks grace 
until they realize that they need it. And the more we have it good in this life, it actually becomes harder and harder for us to see our need for grace. And this was the issue that was being addressed by James. See, the thing is, this is a broken world that we're living in, but if you play your cards right, it can actually be a pretty comfortable place to be if you know what you're doing. You can set yourself up pretty well with a lot of, um, you know, whether it's wealth or, or comforts. Um, and you don't even really have to be all that wealthy in this world to, to have a pretty comfortable life, to have your immediate needs met. And the more and more of your needs that are met, the harder and harder it becomes for us to see our need for God on a daily basis. I mean, why ask God to supply your daily bread when you've already got a pantry full of a month's worth of supply from Sam's Club? It gets harder and harder for us to see our need in this. And this is even more true for us today than it was from James' time, for they were seeing a lot of persecution in their day. And yet, even then, James was noting that he was writing to a group of people that may have professed Christ with their mouth, but they were living as though God didn't exist, as though they were the captains of their fate, as though they were the ones that were in control of how their life was going to go. And so we say, in light of God's grand redemptive plan, yes, you should live by the grace of God, but be humble because God is the one who is sovereign. And this is overarching the entire theme of James' point. And look with me, if you will, at the very beginning of chapter 4. He's making the point to avoid worldliness because we are living in the broken world. So what does it mean to live inside of a broken world but not to become of it? Uh, And there's a few key statements that he makes. If you look at verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Uh, Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And then at the very end of the section, uh, verse 12, um, he sets the stage. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. He's saying there is one God who controls the destiny of all. There is a sovereign God that controls all of this. And we must keep that in mind when we are living in this world. Because there was a group of people as it became grew up more and more common, that were living as though they were in control of all things, not God. And so we come to our text, boasting about tomorrow. In verse 13, he calls attention to his readers, much like an Old Testament prophet might do, saying, bend your ears, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He uses a very universal illustration. In fact, it's uh, such a good illustration that it's incredibly relevant even today. It's the kind of planning that we might make every single day. You know, an entrepreneur might try to make plans about tomorrow, or or we're always trying to make plans about what we're going to do, uh, not just today or tomorrow, um, but, but many years down the road. And so they're, they're making plans about the what are they going to do, the when, the where, the how, the results, um, and what they're, what they're going to do even, even a year down the road. And what is James' response to them uh, in light of this? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, you humans? 
You don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. And, and this is so true. What he's doing, he's calling to attention their frailty. He's calling to attention that they are not God. Because what's going on here is, is they're living, uh, like an atheist might say, there, there is no God. And they're living as this, they are, they are Christians, but they're living as though they are pragmatic atheists. Or what's worse is a self-theist. A self-theist would say, there is a God, and it's me. People that had it so good that they feel that they were in control of their destiny. And it's very easy to fall in this trap for all of us, really. The better things get, the better we get at our planning, the better things go in life. Maybe we get a few things going for us. It gets harder and harder for us to see that we have a need for God, that we rely on God's grace and mercy to not only get through the day, but for us to even have our very next breath. It is dependent on the grace and mercy of a sovereign God. And yet here these people are making plans about uh, the, the next day. And in all of their planning, the, the where, the when, the how, the results, they failed to consider, they never not even once considered the idea that the God, the Lord and sovereign Savior of all, is the one who determines all of these things. They, they never even paused to consider such things. And so James is calling them out and say, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And it's true for all of us. We make plans about tomorrow, but it was one year ago, uh, actually I think it was this week, one year ago this week, we gathered for worship just like we did every week. And we didn't know it at the time, but that would be the last time that we would gather here in the fellowship for a few months. The very next day, the whole state and really the entire nation locked down. And we weren't able to gather for quite some time uh, in person. We didn't know that was going to happen, and yet it happened. We may have made plans to come, but we had no control over such things. For it is God who is in control. And we might have our plans about the way things are going to go, but it is the Lord and sovereign Savior of all who controls the destiny and controls everything of what we are doing. And, and what's more, he calls attention their frailty. He's trying to pop their little balloon of self-reliance. He's trying to tear down the very notion that we are self-reliant and we don't need God. Because that is living as a practical atheist. But he says, not only do you uh, not know what tomorrow brings, he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, calling to attention your very frailty of life. Tomorrow is not guaranteed of you. And this is the kind of language that is used uh, very commonly by um, Old Testament prophets, this idea that, that you are but a mist. Um, today is uncertain, and, and your life in the scheme of all of redemptive history is, is relatively short. This is not to say that your life is meaningless, but it's to say that in the grand scheme of what God is doing in eternity, your life is short. It, it really calls to mind, uh, in, in my mind, this imagery from Ecclesiastes, which we studied uh, a couple of years ago, where at the very beginning, uh, Solomon was making the point of seeking treasures and, and seeking comfort in this world is vanity. It's empty. Solomon had achieved it all, and yet he realized at the end of the day that it was all vanity, vanity of vanities, and that the only true pursuit was the pursuit of God, 
that he is the true fulfillment of what we need, not only in the life to come, but also, yes, in this life. So he calls to attention this, this frailty that we are but a mist. And eventually we must all encounter our very mortality, that we are mortal beings. And one day we are going to die. We don't like to think about it, but it's true. And the very schedule of that is entirely in God's hands. Now, if you are a believer, the day of your death, that's actually a good day for you. You are going to do well. You, you may not want to think about it that way, but that is nothing for you to fear. And even for us being left behind, well, that might actually be a pretty good day too. <laughs> not that we're not going to miss you, but hey, we're going to come here. We're going to sing some nice songs. We're going to put you in the ground. And later on, we're going to come back to the basement and we're going to eat ham rolls and drink powdered country time lemonade. It's what we do. This is the way. But we revel in such things. We have joy in what we do, but we realize that we are mortal and we are serving an infinite God that is in control of all such things. So, and as such, this very notion of self-reliance outside of the providence and sovereignty of God is misplaced. And what's worse, depending on your arrogance, it could in fact be evil. But why? Uh, he, he says um, in, in verse 16, as it is, you, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. What is it about boasting that makes it evil? Why, why is making these plans so bad? Because making plans outside or not even making room for the providence of God is a blasphemous rejection of God's authority in these matters. We never even stop to consider that it is God who is in control of such things. Such a boasting is evil. But what is, what is James saying here? Is it wrong to make plans? I mean, we have to, like, think about tomorrow, right? Is, is making plans wrong? As my wife can attest, I don't like making plans. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not so much a planner. I'd prefer to improvise. I'd prefer to, let's see how it goes and, and improvise our plans for the future. I like to call it living by the grace and providence of God. She likes to call it me being noncommittal. Nevertheless, what, what, what I would like to say, I, I personally would like to say, is making plans wrong? Yes, making plans is wrong. That's what I would like to say, but that is not what the text says. No, the issue is not making plans per se. That, that's not the issue. The issue is the arrogant nature that goes into making plans and the idea that you do not need God on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. Not even bothering to submit your plans in prayer to God, coming to a full realization that you may plan about tomorrow, but God may have different plans for you. And you're okay with that. You are fully aware and you are fully ready to accept that God may have you go somewhere else to do something else, to be with somebody else. God is in control of such things, and you are ready and willing to acknowledge that. That is called being humble, being humble before a sovereign and holy God, living in a way that a sovereign God exists, and you are going to submit your plans and accept what he does within your life. 
Those are two contrasts. So again, the issue is not making plans in and of itself. But the idea is not inviting God or not allowing for a sovereign God to be in control of such things. And he says, what is the solution for this? He says, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So yes, you do make plans. And, and the issue here isn't necessarily uh, preceding every plan with God willing or if the Lord wills. You, you can do that. But you don't just turn that into a mantra, because as you can imagine, mantras just become a meaningless thing after a while. Live as though you are living in the hands of a sovereign God, that your very next breath depends upon the grace and mercy of a God who provides for his people, that your daily bread is being provided not by your efforts, but by a God who enables you to earn such things. For all of these things are good gifts from our Lord and Savior. And, and he finishes this section. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Now, this might seem a little out of place all of a sudden or a little bit of a curveball. But if you know James at all, this is totally at his wheelhouse. This, this is where he goes. And, and essentially what he's saying is, listen, don't just know that God is sovereign. Don't just know the will of God. Actually do it. He said it before, um, yes, saving, you're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Faith without works is dead. The same guy that's saying that is also saying, don't just know the truth, do the truth. Live humbly. Live as though you are living in the hands of a sovereign God. Otherwise, you're living basically like an unbeliever. And speaking of unbelievers... He takes a big curve as you look at uh, chapter 5. And, and, and this is where his language really becomes, you might almost say, harsh. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eating. Your gold and silver have corroded. And, and the corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This, this is harsh language. It is judgmental. And, and, and it's a reminder that judgment is, is coming. Um, and, and he's addressing a people that is living as though judgment isn't coming. Uh, context is, is very important uh, for a passage like this. This is not being written to believers. The book of James is is written to believers, but this particular passage is not being written and pointed at believers. It is a rhetorical response to a very real issue that was going on in the day. Allow me to explain. To be a Christian, a believer, in first century Palestine and Syria, uh, this would have been around the year, somewhere between the year 40 to 50, uh, 10 years after the ascension of Jesus. Um, Many Jews became Christians uh, in the city of Jerusalem. But to be a Christian in this area, in Jerusalem, and indeed all of Palestine and Syria, was a a pretty dangerous place to be. There were many Jewish believers there that that were living, um, yet there were also many Jews that were aligning with the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was definitely wanting to um, quell this Christianity movement, this Jesus movement in the bud, because it was a distraction from the real problem in their mind, and that was the occupation of Palestine by Rome. 
that is what they, that was the problem that they wanted to address. And this whole Jesus thing was, was not something that they, they wanted on their plates. And so James is written to who he calls the dispersion. The, the Jewish believers who had dispersed from Jerusalem. So where were they going? Largely, um, they were going to live as um, sharecroppers, that's one way to put it, uh, to wealthy landowners, primarily to the northeast and the northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, So they would flee because they were facing a lot of persecution. It would be very common for perhaps neighbors to turn them in. If they were outed as believers in Jesus Christ, they could be outed to the Sanhedrin and they would face persecution, possibly even death. And so they were in a very difficult spot. And so they fleed as part of the dispersion. Um, And and a lot of them would go live uh, as sharecroppers with wealthy landowners. And what that would look like is you would go and you would work the land. And in exchange, these wealthy landowners would allow you to live uh, on the property. Uh, You would get a share of the food, um, possibly a share of the profits, uh, depending on uh, what what your arrangement was. But your life was very much in the hands of these wealthy landowners. Um, if, if they wanted to make your life difficult, they could. And, and so here's the thing. The believers that were fleeing as part of the dispersion were in a very tight spot. And the wealthy landowners knew it. Uh, and they took advantage of them. Um, they withheld a lot of their wages. They withheld a lot of the food, and they made their life difficult. And if you stood up to say something about it, they would basically say, oh, gee, you know, it would be a shame if your family's location would be uh, revealed to the Sanhedrin. That, that would be a shame, wouldn't it? So uh, get back to work. These wealthy landowners were getting rich off of the backs of the believers, and they were doing it primarily because of their faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They were taking advantage of the situation that they were in, and this, of course, made James furious, and rightfully so. They were exploiting and indeed persecuting poor, enslaved Christians, And he makes this very clear um, in verse 4 to remove any doubt who he's talking with. Uh, He says, verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They were exploiting these workers. and, And it was a very real issue. Now, here's the thing. This... The the rich that he's addressing, there are several times throughout James that he is addressing the rich. He does it in chapter 2, chapter 3, where there was a problem where uh, rich people were receiving preferential treatment. That was a very real problem, but that was a different problem. That was a different group of people. The, The rich that he is addressing in this particular passage, they were not in the church. Uh, They were not even believers. And in fact, there was a good chance that they were never going to read this passage at all. It was a rhetorical condemnation of these practices of the rich. And the intent of this passage is not necessarily, it it, it is to put down the rich uh, and their practices, but knowing that they would never read this, the real intent was to um, comfort the readers. It was to comfort those who were being persecuted and to remind them the Lord is coming. The Lord is going to fix what is broken. This world that we are living in is broken, and you can't fix it. 
you cannot fix what is broken. You cannot straighten what is crooked, but God can, and one day he will. And he's encouraging the listeners to be patient and to remember that the Lord is coming. He's reminding those who would look to their wealth for their comfort that this is a foolish and empty pursuit. Just as in our first passage, where James makes the point that God is sovereign over our time, here he makes the point that God is sovereign over our wealth and resources. And he exposes the folly of trying to seek comfort in wealth in this world. And just as in the first section, planning is not the issue per se, the having of wealth is not the problem in chapter 5. The problem is, is the attitude that goes into how it was attained. They would do anything for the pursuit of wealth. That came before anything, including the persecution of people. The way that wealth is acquired does matter. And what's worse is, the more and more wealthy that you become, as we've said, the harder and harder it is for you to see the need that we have for God. Do we really seek grace if we have everything under control? If we are lords and masters of our day, do we really see that we have that need for God on a day-to-day basis? And what's worse, if you're sitting comfortable with a lot of wealth, do you really reach out to God? Does it really feel like you need him? That's the trap. Is it possible to know that you need God if you're rich? Yes. Yes, you can and you should. But it becomes that much harder. And for those that place their faith in wealth to deliver them in this world and the world is yet to come, he reminds them that these things will go away. And that is the horrible irony of seeking wealth for your comfort and deliverance in this life. He says, these things are going to corrode. And and these things are mere evidence of your sins in this life. They will consume your flesh like fire. He's reminding them, remember, you're not living this way. But for you unbelievers, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. Judgment is coming. And all of these things will be held against you. Your sins will be revealed for what they are. They will be revealed that you did not seek Christ. You sought the things of this world for your comfort. You sought the things of this world for your deliverance. Know well and know now that judgment is coming for you. And he, even, he even points out, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts for a day of slaughter. Very Old Testament language that's going on here. And as an aside, part of me wonders how James would have been received in his day uh, for, for the language that he was using. Very, um, very Old Testament. Granted, he was, he was um, also very pragmatic, um, but, but he was a very early writer with the New Testament times. I'm not sure how he actually would have been received. I'm, I'm sure he would have been received well by believers, but it's not entirely well known. Um, He's not even, you know, even amongst modern theologians, he's not necessarily the most popular kid at the theological table. But but even then, with the language that he was using, I'm I'm really curious how this would have been received. Nevertheless, um, he's attempting to be very pragmatic with his people about how you live in this broken world. And ultimately, what it comes down to is we are to seek God on his grace and mercy to live in this world not to live by our self-reliance, not to live by our arrogance. Because if you think that you've got it all together, you are arrogant. 
you are merely boasting in the powers that God has given you. And all of those things, all of your skills, all of your resources are gifts from God. They have been provided by God as gifts to you for the purpose of his glorification and his blessing. I I would like to, uh, in in closing, and and don't get excited because there's a few things yet, I want to give you five takeaways. I'm I'm stealing this from Pat. He's been doing this lately. So um, five takeaways, five observations on on what I notice uh, in this text. And if nothing else, this is what I would like you to walk away from, uh, from this particular text. Number one, remember. And and if you don't remember anything else, just, just remember this. This world is broken. It's broken. We live by the grace of a sovereign God. Be humble. Be humble. Notice that whatever we have, whatever we've been given, it's from him. Live in humility. Live in humility to those around you. And of course, live in humility to our God of gods, our sovereign God who is in control of all things who's our one lawgiver and judge and who's able to save and destroy. Now, fortunately, as we know for our people, we know that our God is good and he delights in giving good gifts to his children. Number two, remember, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Not only in the vertical, not only for our deliverance from sin, we need Jesus for our deliverance in this life, in the horizontal. You need him Not just tomorrow, you need him today. You need him day to day. You need him moment to moment. Friends, you need Jesus for your deliverance in both the vertical and the horizontal. Number three, a lot of times when we look at passages like the the boasting about tomorrow, um, it, it, it talks about knowing and doing the will of God. And uh, this is, this is pertinent on all of our minds. We would like to know what is it that, that God wants me to do? And of, of course, um, when it says, he who knows the will of God and fails to do it is evil, and then you immediately think, well, well wait a minute. What, what is the will of God? What does he want me to do? And, and what you're thinking is, well, where, you know, where does he want me to live? Um, where, where does he want me to eat lunch today? You know, who does he want me to marry? What kind of job does he want me to give? We make complex what is actually very simple. Uh, in, the, in the context of this particular passage, what James was saying um, is do the things that I've just been talking about. Be humble. You know, don't live arrogantly. Be humble. But throughout all of scriptures, it's been made very, very clear what it is that God wants us to do. He's made it clear that he desires that his will is that all men come to the knowledge of the glory of God. He desires his will is that all men be saved. If you have not cried out to God for mercy, if you have not asked for forgiveness of your sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are in rebellion to the will of God. You are in rebellion to the very will of God. Repent. Repent. Ask Jesus for your salvation. Do not be in rebellion to the will of God. He has made that entirely clear what his will is. And if you have done that, if you have cried out to God for mercy, you are one of his children. You are living in the will of God. And he has told you in scripture to love God and also to love those around you. Love one another. That's his will for your life. He's he's made it very, very clear. 
It's not that complicated. Now, does God have a plan for your tomorrow? The specifics of, of what exactly you're going to do, what tomorrow looks like? Yes. Yes, he does have those things planned. Is he going to tell you exactly what that is? Probably not until it happens. But what you as believers are doing is living humbly. You are ready and willing to accept what God has planned for your life. And for now, he has told you what he wants you to do. Love God. Love others. Live within the will of God. Number four, and and perhaps one of the, the primary ideas here, is to never let wealth or any good gift come in front of the giver. So again, this passage, planning is not the issue. And even wealth is not the issue per se. Is it wrong to be rich? Uh, And the answer is no. No, it's not wrong to be rich. But the error comes, uh, and and this particular passage in in, in, uh, chapter 5 has been misused in many ways. It's been misused um, by a lot of people in, uh, say, the liberation theology camp um, that would suggest that all wealth is evil. And they miss James' point entirely. The issue is not whether wealth is evil or not evil. The issue is what is done with it and how it is used within the purposes of God. And, and so remember, and, and it's very easy for us because I think for most of us, we would probably think, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. You know, because for all of us, pretty much our ever-ending definition of what rich is is, well, pretty much anyone that makes $20,000 more than me is rich. So I am not rich. But if you think about what our needs are, Our actual day-to-day needs are relatively humble. We don't actually need a lot. We need food to get through the day. We need reasonable clothes. We need our health. We need enough to get through the day, but that is actually not a lot. And so I would say that anybody who is rich is someone that has more than they have or more than they what? Need. So if you have more than you need to get by on a day-to-day basis, you should consider yourself rich. Should you feel guilt or shame because of this? No. You should not feel guilt or shame because you have more than you need. You should not feel guilt or shame if you are, in fact, wealthy. You should look to these things as good gifts from God. Yes, God may have decided to bless you, but there may have been a reason why he blessed you with material wealth, to be a blessing to you, but also to be a blessing to those around you. Consider the purposes of which God may be blessing you. And um, I would say, keep your eyes open for opportunities to help those around you. You may have your day-to-day needs met, but there may be those around you who do not. Consider the idea of sharing your excess with those who do not have their day-to-day needs met. A very easy and practical way of doing that, our deacons fund. Uh, We have uh, our deacons that that manage uh, very soundly and and intelligently a way of helping those within our fellowship that do not have all their needs met. Uh, Consider giving to to the deacons fund. Um, And also, um, as many of you are here, are just simply very generous to those around you. Good. (laughs) Do that. And do that joyfully. Uh, but you don't need to feel guilt or shame about the good gifts that God has given you or the things that God has enabled for you. Just realize where those things have come from. And never, ever let the pursuit of those good things come before your pursuit of Christ. The pursuit of wealth in this life can be all-consuming if you let it be. 
don't look to this world. Don't look to this broken world for your comfort. Look to Jesus for your joy and comfort. Finally, number five, the overarching plan of redemption. Remember, one day God is going to make this right. This world is broken. It is broken. It is crooked. It is conflicted. And one day God, not you, God is going to make all of this right. That may not be today, but it's coming. Live like it. God is going to make all this right. And as James points out in the very next verse, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's going to happen. God is going to make all of this right. He's already made us right with God in the vertical. One day the horizontal is going to be made right as well. It's going to happen. I'm excited. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like or when that's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Be excited. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given good gifts. And Lord, it is to you we reach out for our daily needs. We know that it is you that provides all good things. We know that it is you that has uh, done everything for us. And Lord, we we simply reach out for grace and mercy to be in your hands. Uh, Lord, we thank you. And, And we do submit our plans. We may make plans for our future. And we know that there are many great things that are yet to come. But Lord, these things are all of you. And Lord, we humbly submit these things to you. We humbly submit ourselves, our families, our futures, all to you, Lord. Lord, we thank you because you are good. Everything we have is all to you, Lord. And we lift up your name to the praise of your glory.